0: You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 57. I found at Cornell, especially that cycle that resulted in Kean I was there waiting for my transfer and I was there with other women who were waiting and they hadn't done this before and they were worried and nervous and we would chat. And I felt like I was at a place where I was okay with whatever the outcome was, even though I didn't know that it was going to work and that I could sort of share a little bit of what I'd learned in the process with these other people. And that felt really good. Like it felt kind of Zen in the right way, you know, I don't know how I feel about reasons for things, but that could be a reason why I went through this so that I could then share this here and share in those moments and help people in their journey. It definitely brought Bob and I closer together. I'm already a pretty patient person, but it definitely like taught me a huge lesson in patience. And also sort of a humbleness, you know, that I couldn't do it myself, that I needed to just trust and put it out there, but then try to just be okay with whatever happened.
1: Please know that we welcome your feedback on the show. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to hear or learn in future episodes. Reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at NYC, or you can email us at podcast at birthmattersnyc.com. Early in the podcast's first season, in Episode 5, Julie shared her baby's birth story. She returns today to share her fertility journey, whereby it took several years of perseverance to successfully conceive and give birth to her healthy baby boy. Just need to give a trigger alert that there's pregnancy loss described in this episode. The path to conceiving her son via IVF included unsuccessful IUIs, or intrauterine inseminations, a chemical pregnancy, early loss of twins, and switching care providers and hospitals along the way. She explains how her Christian faith created a bit of conflict within her at first about this pursuit, and she also describes some different opinions her family had about trying to conceive in alternative ways. Julie also goes into other emotional and relational aspects of the journey and, for her, how valuable it was when she was able to shift toward feeling at peace with whatever the outcome. She wanted to share her journey in hopes that it can encourage others on a similar path. Now let's tune in and hear my chat with Julie. Hi, Julie. It's so good to see you again. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm so, I know you shared your baby's birth story in the first season, and I asked you back because you have an IVF fertility journey story to share with us, right?
0: Yes, I do. It was quite a journey <laughs> to get to our little boy, Keen. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Should I just launch right in? Go right ahead. Sure. Okay. Well, I figured to start, I should sort of explain a little bit of my background and my husband's background and how we met and like our sort of family planning, an original idea. <laughs> so I met my husband, Bob, when I went to London after I graduated from college and we both work in theater. I was doing props and painting and he is a carpenter. And so I actually met him at a scene shop in London and that was it we dated and then just sort of like about a month later he was like oh maybe i should think about moving to new york when you moved to new york but neither of us were in a huge rush to have a family like there was about two and a half years of back and forth dating he was in london part-time in new york part-time and we got married when i was around 25 so maybe mean, i was 22 and it was about 25 100. and you know at that point i was living in new york he moved to new york and we were both here both still working in theater and just it didn't seem like a huge rush, right, to have a family. We kind of had talked about it early on, like, what are your thoughts about this? And I feel like I was like 70-30 pro and he was like 70-30 con or something like that. But I felt like, you know, ultimately we probably will have a baby, you know. And so time goes by, we bought a house when I was around 29 and it's a huge project house, needing lots of renovation work, which we we're doing ourselves, kind of in a really old house and kind of disgusting renovation work. And so it was obviously, that wasn't the time, right? But as it started to get closer to 32-ish, I was like, the house is still under renovation, but like, you know how they say that there's never the right time to have a baby, right? So I'm like, well, you know, the house really still isn't done, but maybe if we just start trying, then maybe we can just rush and get the house ready. So it was around then when I was 32, and Bob's a bit older. He's about seven and a half years older than me we decided to not necessarily try but not prevent things from happening and that was actually kind of difficult because we're one of those couples that don't tend to like you know we're not like an everyday having sex kind of couple (laughs) so you know it's just We're both busy and tired and whatever. So it was actually kind of hard work as much as I'm like, oh, we'll just see what happens. Like in my mind, I'm starting to track things, right? Like I'm starting Mm -hmm. to track my cycle and like, okay, I know this is the time of the month and I'm starting to pay attention to my cervical mucus and pay attention to these things. And so then it would be in close to the time of the month and I'd be like, you know, the time to try and I'd be like, all right, let's have a nice dinner. And he's like, oh, really? (laughs) You know, there were many, (laughs) many months of sort of, you know, it was work. And as more time went on and we were actually sort of making attempts at the right time, but then things weren't really, you know, nothing was coming of it. So it was around, I think by the time I was 33, we were probably actively trying most months. And then-
1: Can I ask you a quick question, Julie? Sure. Yeah. You you mentioned checking cervical mucus and Mm -hmm. whatnot. I'm assuming that's the natural fertility awareness method. Yeah. Well,
0: it's been a while since I- was doing that. So I I don't really remember. I'm not the kind of person who takes painkillers when I have a headache. You know, I just don't like, I tend to try to do things naturally through diet, through, you know, health, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think I just started, I think I read, oh, there's some famous book that now I can't, Think of what it's called, but probably
1: taking charge of your fertility would probably, be my guess. Yeah, like that's the probably, standard that's probably one. Probably what it
0: is. Yeah, and so I started to learn about some of the like temperature tracking, cervical mucus tracking. I had been going to acupuncture and you know, they had a friend who had just recently gotten certified for it. And so I was like, oh, I'll you know, go to her. And then it turned into like, oh, I'll go to her to try to increase my fertility. But I think we talked about some of that stuff too, herbal supplements, things like that. So yeah. So I, I think it was probably taking charge of your fertility and there's like charts at the back that you can track things like your mucus consistency and the temperatures. So then, you know, when your temperature shoots up, it's actually your cervical mucus changes consistency so that it's like kind of like creamy, it's sort of wet, and then it's creamy, and then as it's getting closer to when you're about to ovulate, it's stretchy, right? Kind of like say like stickier, yeah, or whatever. Uh-huh. And so I was doing that, and then but then your temperature also spikes up, but sometimes it's a little too late once it's spiked up. Sometimes it's after you've ovulated as opposed to like when you're about to. So at that time, I kind of I went back and forth month to month. Like I was trying not to obsess, but of course I was kind of obsessing and like. Like, you know, I was like, well, maybe I just should stop tracking these things and just try to relax about it. Because everyone says if you just relax, it'll happen. But then at the same time, it's like, well, but maybe I need to keep better track of it, you know. And so it, it was actually, it was difficult to know what to do. I'm naturally a problem solver, project manager type of person. I feel like I'm used to figuring out how to make things happen. And I found that whole period very frustrating. It felt like I was grabbing at straws about what was going to be the magic thing that was going to click and mean that I could get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So it was around when I was 34, I think, that I finally went to the OBGYN I hadn't really been going. I would just gone to my like primary care doctor who was doing pap smears for me. You know, I hadn't been to like proper OB, but I went to the one I was going to at that point, did some, was able to do some hormone testing. I probably could have gone sooner, but I also was kind of like, well, if I just wait long enough, I try these other methods, then it'll just happen. And I won't have to go on this route of, you know, IVF or whatever of help. So yeah, and then when I went to get tested around 34, so there's a few different hormones that control fertility. There's like your LH, luteal hormone, your um, FSH, your follicle stimulation hormone. Then there's something they call the AMH level and it's the anti-Mullerian hormone. And it's, I think it's named after Dr. Mueller who discovered this. It's something that fertility doctors look at and it kind of tells them your egg health the age of your eggs, you know, it just gives them a sense of what that is. And so when I got tested at 34, my levels were low enough as if I was already 40. We all kind of thought maybe because libidos were low that maybe there would be an issue on Bob's end as well, but it turned out that his was like amazing and high. So it was really just unexplained fertility, probably on my end based on these levels of hormones. So how did that
1: feel getting that news?
0: Well, Again, I was like, oh, okay, well, there's a reason, I guess, why this isn't working. But then I also just, I don't know, I never really, I just kind of always felt like, well, maybe it doesn't matter what that is. Maybe it'll just happen anyway, you know, it'll just be the magic month when it happens. So I didn't feel too bad about myself myself about that news. I think in general, it was difficult because it felt like my body was kind of letting me down, you know, like somehow I was failing or my body Mm -hmm. was failing me, especially when friends at that age, people were just having babies. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have very many friends who were going through the same thing, a few, but a lot of people were just, it was no problem, you know? And then it's just kind of like, oh, well, why, why me? You know, why is this, you you end up, especially as someone who's used to solving problems, right? Just feeling Mm -hmm. kind of like, upset about yourself.
1: <laughs> and from what I understand from a lot of people, it can feel so isolating because a lot of people might've had those struggles, but they might've just not shared those struggles. Yeah. A because
0: it's as confident or not a confidence, but like a, yeah. Like it feels like shame or embarrassed. Failure. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's hard. Even my friends who were going through similar things, not all of them really wanted to talk about it, you know, mm-hmm, with sure. me. That's part of why I'm glad you're doing this. And also I'm really happy to share because I'm a talker <laughs> and I, I think it, it is helpful. Those are common feelings and it's good to get them out and then sort of see ways that they're not true, even though mm-hmm. they are the valid feelings, but, you know, just sort of have a, at least know that someone shares those valid feelings, I guess. Sure.
1: Can so, I also yeah. ask, if I heard you right, it sounded like they identified an issue, but then they also called it unexplained fertility. That sounds yeah, well, that's not conclusive, but no, not- I mean that the
0: AMH level—it's not a conclusive thing, right? It's a test that kind of gives them a general idea of what's going uh, on. Okay, but they—I don't think they consider it. It's not like a sperm count where you can be like, "Oh, you have a really low sperm count." That's like conclusive and Mm evidence-based in a way. Mm -hmm. I think that the hormone levels, because hormones can change because things are woodgy, right? I think that it just ended up being a diagnosis of unexplained. Um, And
1: that is such a common thing I'm hearing as I'm doing more of these interviews is so many people get that label of uh unexplained fertility and the mind games that that can play. Uh I don't know if it played mind games with you at all, but...
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I sort of found myself like clinging to this hope, like, well, it's not a given, right? Like 40 year olds yeah. have babies, even uh-huh. though I'm only 34, like it's not mm-hmm. a given. So sure. so yeah, it didn't, I don't know if, it, if I'd say it played mind games, but it definitely was vague enough that it left room for hope that I didn't have to go through the whole process I ended up going through. So that was odd and made it harder and awkward and sort of you know, if it had been like, oh, it's clearly this, and this is how we're going to treat it, then it would have been maybe a bit easier or more straightforward, or maybe I wouldn't have waited quite as long, you know, mm-hmm. to actually do it. And also I'll mention here, I wanted to bring it up at some point. I think this is about when I was thinking of talking about, it, but I, I come from a Christian family and I am a practicing Christian. And so there are quite a few issues or, you know, concerns surrounding, like, how much do you just, like, wait for God's will, wait for it to happen if it's meant to be, then it will happen. And how much do you actually put the money and the effort and you know consult doctors and the science to Mm -hmm. have it happen? And that was definitely there were things that I thought about a lot. And and I think that also contributed to my like, well maybe a miracle will happen and it will just work. Right. Yeah. And and my parents, my dad was kind of like, well, you know, I was like, should I do this or should I not do this? Like should I go on this route of science? And he was like, well, you know, I I don't know, but but God likes babies and families and like, you know, there's, there's no reason you shouldn't try as hard as you can to see what happens, you know? And my mom was kind of against it. And she was sort of more of the camp of like, well, you know, this is, it's too much. And like, you should just Mm -hmm. trust. And, And my sister was also, she was kind of like, she's fallen away a bit from faith. So she came at it, I think more from from the science end. And she was like, well, look, if you got a diagnosis of something like cancer, would you just sit back and be like, well, I'm not going to treat this and just let God heal me? Or would you go and get treatment? You know. And I was like, well, obviously I would go and get treatment. You know. And that I found that actually quite helpful in thinking about the IVF too, because, mm-hmm. and ultimately I think you'll probably see from the story, but, you know, ultimately you can't, doctors can't make it happen. It's still ultimately it, it's going to happen. God's going to allow it to happen or it's not, you know, yeah, yeah, um, that's a great point. as much as they do, as many interventions as they can make, they can't guarantee that it's going to mm-hmm. work. So, mm-hmm. so that I also felt ultimately that they weren't wrong choices somehow to then pursue the IVF, you know, the science route. So yeah. So let's see. So then after I got the, the low AMH Reading from the OBGYN, that particular office. So, there's a couple things that you do, a couple steps, right? You don't just jump straight into IVF usually, unless there's mm-hmm. some bigger. You know the thing that they know about, but so the first step that you take is to do IUI, which is interuterine insemination, which some people call the turkey baster method because I think some people at home yeah. maybe do like use a turkey baster and like shoot the sperm <laughs> in there at the right time and then it just works right. But when you do it through a doctor, <laughs> it's a little bit more controlled. But that was essentially the first thing that they recommended at my OB, and they could do everything leading up to that, like all the monitoring that has to happen, and that you take an oral hormone, they could do that through their office. And then I just had to go to a different facility for the actual IUI procedure. So I was like, okay, well, that's fine. And so we talked about that. And the doctor had said, and she must've even prescribed the oral hormone that you can take, which is called Clomid, I think is usually what they use. And I must've misunderstood her because she gave me this prescription for this and she was thinking it was gonna be in conjunction with doing IUI. I thought, oh, I'm just gonna take this and like, we're gonna try at the right time of the month and that's gonna like, so I ended up like for two or three months, I took the Clomid and then we just made good efforts at home. And when I ultimately went back, to the doctor, she was like, oh, that's not what I meant at all. But but she was like, okay, well, you know, so you tried that. So once that didn't work, we did, I think maybe just one round of IUI through my OB. And that was covered by the insurance because it's not considered advanced reproductive technology, fertility methods. I think most insurances will cover IUIs, but then when it comes to IVF, the majority don't cover it because. Yeah,
1: and even if they do, I've heard that you have to do IUI first mm-hmm. before moving to that. I think so, yeah. Because yeah. so
0: then they're like, well, if that'll work, then you don't need to go to that, which makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the IUI,
0: I mean, it was quite a while ago now, but just leading up to it, you're taking the Clomid orally and they're checking the follicles in both of your ovaries. I forget how often, every few days, maybe just to see how they're growing, see how many there are, get a sense of like what's going on. And then they have you take a a trigger shot of the hormone that triggers your body to ovulate naturally. You have to do a shot of that at a very particular time, the day before you are going to go in for the IUI. And that way they know that you are ovulating. They're semi-controlling your ovulation by telling your body now's the time to release the egg. And then you go in the next day and they just use a little catheter and like, and then Bob had to do his sample. <laughs> you can, you know, you can have a fresh sample, which is like him there doing it, which puts a little bit of pressure on him to perform in the moment, which is a little tricky, but he didn't want to talk about it. So I'm not, I think they take him to a room with some magazines, but I don't really know. Yeah. Or you, if you had a donor sperm, then it would be, you know, then obviously it's just there and waiting, but, and then you just wait. And so we did that with the OB and didn't have success. And so at that point, they had given me a list of different places that will do advanced reproductive treatments. Mm -hmm. And so of the list, I, we went with Columbia because it was, the office was close to where I was working at the time. So that was convenient. And also they offered like a cheaper introductory rate of like, I think it was $7,500 for IVF. We did do an IUI with them first, I believe one or maybe two just to see and didn't, have luck with those either. So yeah, each step of the way, I was like, Oh, really? I have to try something else. Like this is not working. So then I'm like, well, maybe if we just do the cheap introductory rate, like maybe it'll just be like instant, right? That's all I need is just that little extra, like whatever. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So that started us on that sort of uh, trajectory of, and this was when I was 36, I believe. 35 into 36,
1: maybe. And did you say you started sort of just casually not trying to prevent around 32? 32
0: was when we were kind of like not preventing. Mm -hmm. Although I was on birth control very briefly for like a year, maybe. And then I went off of it because it it did weird things to my body. So we'd always been kind of doing like a rhythm Mm -hmm. method anyway. But yeah, 32 and then maybe 33 started like being more active trying. 34 went to the OB and got, did the Clomid, did the IUI. And then around 35, 36 Went to Columbia, and you know it wasn't a horrible experience at Columbia, but it it definitely felt compared to where I ended up at Cornell, where I had success and had my baby. Columbia, looking back, felt a little low grade, but the whole process is just kind of. It feels a little like, I don't know, when you start on IVF, like around, if you're actively taking the hormones and growing the eggs, then it's called like a fresh cycle. And then resulting in like when they retrieve the embryos and they put them in without freezing them, then that's, that's the fresh cycle. And then any that are left over, they freeze. And then you have subsequent frozen cycles, but particularly for a fresh cycle, when you're injecting the hormones, you're having to go in almost every morning for what they call morning monitoring where they're doing a transvaginal ultrasound and looking at both ovaries, checking the sizes. They measure the diameters of each egg they can see and the number on each size. And they're just tracking how they're growing. They call it your protocol, the hormones that you're taking the amount and which ones. And so they just, I think are keeping track of making sure that that's working, you know, that, that things are looking good. But that morning monitoring, at least pre COVID, you know, back, back in those days, it was just like a free for all, you know, it felt a little like I don't know if meat mark is the right thing, but there's just, there's no time slot. You can get to the office anytime between 6.30 and 9.00 AM. And then it's like first come, first serve. So you end up on a list based on when you arrive. And so like the earlier, the better, right? Unless mm-hmm. you can't. And then in that case, you could be waiting for hours just to go in for your, and you do blood work as well, oh. blood work and the transvaginal options. And it's just a room full of like kind of sad, desperate women like there oh. for their morning monitoring, you know, it's just really like, cause everyone's like not sure if it's going to work. And there's just so much like emotion and
1: very loaded. Really pretty.
0: Yeah, very loaded. And it's it's really hard. (laughs)
1: And how how frequently were you having
0: to go? Well, when I was doing a fresh cycle, you have to go, if not every day, every other day. Oh Uh, my goodness. And as you get closer to the time that you're gonna ovulate, then you're going every day. So because they're seeing like when, when, when yeah. So it's it was intense. <laughs> a lot of early mornings. And then also, you know, if you have to get to work, like it's fine if it's like, oh, I'm pre-work. But then if you end up having to wait for two hours, then mm-hmm. you're going to be late for work. And then that just throws everything off. And,
1: and a lot of people are trying to be discreet and not let work know what's yeah, going on. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, and then sometimes the partners come too, which is great. But then also that's hard on them too, you know, but then they want to be supportive. And then, you know, it's just it's tricky. I I have found, I, I will say, we just, we did a frozen cycle. Actually, we had two more embryos left and we just did a frozen cycle without success, unfortunately, but it was just in August. And so it's entirely different now post COVID because they actually give you an appointment time slot for morning monitoring. Yay. <laughs> so that you can kind of guarantee that you're only going to be there for like half an hour max, which is really great. <laughs> anyway, but so when we went to talk to Columbia and the doctor, you know, she looked at, everything from before with the IUIs and, and my, they again, took a lot of the hormone levels again, my AMH again, like all these different things. Um, before we did a cycle, I had to go in a couple of times of the month so they could take my levels, do blood work and see what the levels were on like a regular month for me to get a sense of what the protocol should be. And then, so she ended up putting me on the highest dose of the follicle stimulation hormone, which is the main, there's a couple of different drugs that, typically you inject in the course of an IVF cycle. And then some of the names are going to escape me, but Follistim is is the one that's like, it comes in a pen that like clicks and it's cold and it's kind of weird, but that's the one that's the follicle stimulation hormone. And then there's another one that's called Menopure. And there's a few different brand names that are pretty much equivalent. I think Follistim, the equivalent was, there's another one called like Gonal F or something like that. And so before you start, once they tell you what your protocol is going to be, you, you, the patient have to call around to various pharmacies to see what the different pharmacies charge for the different drugs. And if they charge like this much for folistim and this much for gonalef, and then like one is cheaper than the other, then you can just go with, you can choose that way. Right. But then there's levels that you have to take depending on how much help you need in stimulating your eggs to grow. But so she put me on the highest dose of the folistim, which of course it gets more expensive the higher the dose. So it ended up, being quite a bit of money overall, and then you're injecting that every day at the same time every night into your abdomen or your legs. I I don't love needles, but Bob is deathly afraid of needles, so I ended up doing it myself. I know some partners are able to do that for their mm-hmm. you know their mm-hmm. partner, but but not in my case you <laughs> so. on your
1: own. <laughs> on my own, you
0: have to do like a little training about how to do the injections. Like they have classes. Oh wow! With like ten couples mm-hmm. or whatever before you start a cycle and learn how to do it and then the needles are short but you know it's still annoying and then some of them there's another one called Menipure. i'm not exactly sure what that one does but but that was also part of my protocol and so that came in little it was like a powder so you had to take saline from one suck it into the needle and then shoot it into the bottle and mix and like however many bottles like you mix them together into the thing and then inject that like it just is a lot of like you know, again, for someone who like doesn't even take Advil, right. It was kind of a lot of medical, but anyway, I, I got fairly good, I think at <laughs> at injections. I'm glad I'm past that now, but I didn't have as bad of issues as some people with like bruising and stuff like that. But some people get really beat up with, over them with the injections.
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask back to like, you mentioned Clomid and then with these things, did you have noticeable side effects?
0: I didn't spend so long, Lisa. I I, well, that's I'm, okay if you don't I'm remember. I'm not really
1: sure. I mean... If you don't remember, that probably means they weren't too bad,
0: <laughs> I, I would think. I, it wasn't. No, it wasn't too bad. I mean, I think I feel like it, you know, maybe I felt more kind of like periody, right, in my uterus and my abdomen, like and maybe twinges and, you know, but there weren't other side effects, at least for me. No nausea, no like things like that. Mm-hmm. and Clomid was nothing like there. I don't remember anything with that, but with the others, I think because I was on the highest doses, I think it was more the stress of the injections, honestly. And also mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of stress around the timing, to at the same time every day. You sure. like need to make sure everything's clean. I was like, you know, in my kitchen at like 10 PM or 10 30 PM, like clearing off the table, sterilizing everything, like doing the thing. And so there was a lot of like around that, you mm-hmm. know, and then also they, again, you have to do a trigger shot before they, so you, you spend the first half of the month, like growing the eggs with the hormones and injections and then monitoring how things are going. And then when the eggs are big enough and it seems like it's the time you, you add in a third injectable medication as you get closer to ovulation, I think to prevent you from ovulating too early. Hmm. So they're building, building, building the eggs. And then at some point they're getting really big and they're like, oh, wait, don't ovulate that. So then you okay. add in this third one. And then when the time is right, then you do another trigger shot. That has to be at an exact time. They call you like the day of to be like, do it at 11 p.m. Because based on when you do that is when they'll have you in the next day to do the egg retrieval, which is an operation you're under, are you, yeah, you're under anesthesia for it it sounds
1: like like if somebody doesn't already have anxiety yeah or if they it, do oh my gosh like
0: <laughs> so, it's so not conducive to conceiving a baby no but yeah it's, it's very anxiety driven and so then of course the doctors know what they're doing but then in my mind it's like okay i have to do this shot at this time because then i'm going to ovulate but what if i ovulate too soon and then they don't get the eggs and then and so you get to the facility the next morning to, to have the egg retrieval and then you know you have a time to be there which is like really early in the morning like 6 a.m but then you know you're sort of sitting there waiting and like oh no what if they're missing the window like what if they don't know you know like you're kind of like it's just it's very stressful so egg retrieval is an operation so you're under um, anesthesia and then you come out of it and when you're and it, it's an outpatient thing you know it's, it's, it, at Columbia they actually did it in the clinic there with Cornell I had to go across the street to New York Presbyterian Hospital but so then as I'm recovering like an hour I uh, was it half an hour an hour After they come and tell you how many they were able to get, how many eggs they got. Oh, and then at the same time that you're having the retrieval, your partner is doing his sample, right? Again, a fresh sample, again, pressure, right? Yeah. But so once they say, you know, we got X many eggs and then they put them in the dish with the sperm and then you wait. And I think it's pretty common now that you then have the transfer of the embryos, whichever eggs fertilized then you see like how many make it to embryo stage. And they can either wait three days or five days. I think it's less common to wait three days because five days is a more mature embryo. It's actually called a blastocyst at that point because it has divided into, I think it's more than 50 cells or something like that. They base it based on how much it's divided within. And I think they tend to have more, better success rates with five-day embryos. So anything I did was always with a five-day embryo. So I think with Columbia, I think they got 10 eggs during the retrieval. And we ended up with five embryos and they, at Columbia, they gave them grades, which they didn't do at Cornell. Is it it's sort of funny. They gave them like two letter grades. And the first was for like size. And the second was for like amount of division or something like that. So, but basically of the five embryos that we got, the best one was a baby. <laughs> And then the other four were CCs, so they weren't very good.
1: So is it similar Um, to academic grades where like A is the best quality? Yeah,
0: I think so. But they can only tell quality based on, again, no one can say if it's going to be a viable embryo or not. But they can look Mm -hmm. at the size and they can look at how much the cells have divided or how good the divisions are looking, you know. And at Columbia, they give them these grades. So, So I was like, oh, well, you know... So BB, is not terrible. Right. And so in that first cycle at Columbia with the, the fresh cycle, we ended up just transferring the one BB embryo. I was again, like nervous. I was like, well, you know, maybe just took this little bit and like, I don't want to have twins. So, you know, let's just put one in. So we transferred the one and that I did actually get pregnant. It ended up being what they call a chemical pregnancy, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know that at first. So, so we got a positive pregnancy test. You go in, you know, eight days later or 10 days later after the transfer for the pregnancy test for a blood pregnancy test. And then after that you go in, I think every day or every other day to check your HCG levels, make sure the pregnancy hormone is getting higher as it should. And with that Pregnancy, it did get higher and higher, but then when it came time to have the ultrasound for a heartbeat, which they do around seven weeks, they couldn't find a heartbeat and it looked small. Like it looked like at the size it should have been at like five and a half weeks. I, I should have mentioned after the embryo transfer at Columbia, they had me just on progesterone, like vaginal suppositories. And you take those, it's like supporting the pregnancy. So with the positive pregnancy test, you continue having the suppositories. But so when I went for the ultrasound and they couldn't find the heartbeat, I like, again, my mom's opinion and things came into play. Like, you know, it was like, well, maybe it's going to be there and it's just isn't there yet. And my mom was sort of like, yeah, you know, I, I can't believe that it didn't, that it didn't work. Like that there isn't a heartbeat. And, you know, my, your sister's like her little, her first boy, like they couldn't find it until 10 weeks, the heartbeat. So and I was like, oh. and we, it was December and we were just about to travel back to the UK for Christmas And so the doctor at Columbia sent me to another facility where they had a better ultrasound machine before I left and they did another ultrasound and they still couldn't find a heartbeat. But because I was so loath to like give up on this in case maybe it would miraculously work out, the doctor kept me on the progesterone supplements, which meant that I didn't get a period until, and then when I came back from the UK in early January at what would have been like 10 weeks, At that point, it was clear that there was nothing. And so then they had me stop the supplements, and then they recommended having a DNC to sort of clear everything up. So I did that. So that was my first IVF round. And then there had been four more embryos, so we we did two subsequent frozen rounds, and we put two embryos in each time. And uh, there was no even a chemical pregnancy as a result of either of those. And another thing at Columbia with the frozen embryo transfer cycles, FET cycles, they had me take a drug called Lupron, which basically means that they control your cycle. They prevent your body from ovulating that month. So I was again, having to do injections before I went in for the frozen embryo transfer when you're doing a frozen embryo cycle, like you don't go through the whole process of injecting hormones to build your eggs, right? That's already been done in the fresh cycle. But after you've ovulated, they wait five days and then you go in for the transfer, which is more like the IUI where you're not under anesthesia. They just put a catheter in and or they just you know, somehow get the embryo or embryos mechanically into your uterus. So it's much less of a thing. But I did find at Columbia because they wanted to control my ovulation and make sure I didn't ovulate that I was still having to do injections of the Lupron. So Cornell was different, but I'll talk about that in a minute.
1: If I understood correctly, at this point at Columbia, you had had three rounds of IVF? Three
0: rounds, one fresh and two frozen.
1: Okay. And if you don't mind answering this question, you mentioned something about $7,500. Is that every single round of trying
0: it's cheaper for the frozen embryo cycles because you don't have to have as much monitoring and then also because you're not going through the egg retrieval right so I forget what that was at Columbia but it was maybe more like three or four thousand dollars for the Mm -hmm. cycle but don't forget like with the fresh cycle so it's the 7500 that was the introductory rate I think a normal rate like for a second round of a fresh round would have been Mm -hmm. more like nine or 10,000. And then, but there was the cost of the hormones on top of that, the injection, you know, the Hmm. drugs. Oh, that's not covered. Probably like $8,000 on top of that because I was on the highest doses. So they were the most expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was looking at like something like $500 a day or five, oh five to $800 gosh. a day of um, wow. and drugs alone of, for the fresh cycle. I don't really remember what the cost of the Lupron was for the frozen cycles mm-hmm. at Columbia. But, so it was a significant investment of money mm-hmm. at that point. But then I've always felt like, you know, once the frozen embryos existed, I couldn't just be like, well, they're CCs. Let's not bother. That's just not who I am, you know? And also I'm like, well, God gave me these. So I need to give them a chance, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah. And that definitely came into play because we, we don't have a lot of extra money. So in terms of like making the decisions of, do we do this or not do this? But it felt like we needed to, I felt like I needed to, once I decided to go the route of science, I needed to do the best I could, give it the best try I could, you know, that I could afford to, so that I would know that I had done my best, whatever happened, you know, I would hate to regret or feel like I hadn't done enough somehow, you know? So that's kind of what actually, speaking of that, So after we'd gone through all that at Columbia, I was kind of like, well, you know, what do we do now? Is this the end of the road? Like, what do we do? And I just, I felt like we had had success, even though the baby never had a heartbeat, like it had worked, right? So it was possible for it to work. And we ended up getting a check in the mail from Columbia for like a couple thousand dollars or $3,000. I don't remember why. It was some sort of a refund. Hmm. I didn't even know why. But when it came, I was like, oh, this is crazy. And right around that same time, some other people at work, not friends of mine, but people that I knew had had gone through IVF and had success and they were older than me. There were two people actually, and they had both used Cornell and Cornell had been on my original list and they were among, I think they and NYU were the most expensive, right? Of the batch. But these acquaintances from work, I just spoke so highly of it. And then I just got this big check from Columbia and I was like, oh, well, maybe this is like a sign that we should give it one more chance and just go with Cornell and just see if it's better or different. So the doctors that these acquaintances had used didn't take my insurance or something, but I ended up um, seeing Dr. Glenn Chapman at Cornell and we had an initial meeting with him and he was a little like not terse, but he just was kind of a little offhand. But it was like, well, maybe you know, this is what happened, and maybe it's this, or maybe it's this. And I think he was kind of a little like, hmm, well, you know, let's not, let's not hypothesize, you know. And it, it just felt like he was not really paying too much attention, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. But I, we kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it, I was like, well, okay, let's just try this and see. And in the end, like he was just an amazing doctor. Like I can't speak highly enough of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why that first meeting was a little off, but overall, like. Even shortly after, I was like, oh, he's doing well. And then by the end of our time at Cornell, I just, I
1: can't speak mm-hmm. enough of
0: him. Very now, terrifying.
1: were you able to take frozen <clears throat> embryos from Columbia? I didn't have
0: okay. I think I could have, but we used them up at Columbia. Okay. So with Cornell, we did another fresh cycle and that was in 2016. So I was 38 at that point.
1: And you didn't um, have to start over with IUI, did you? No. Okay. No, because once that didn't work, then it was
0: just like, okay, well, that didn't work. It's not going to work. And, you know, we had kind of been trying on our own in between, right? Like, just in case that miracle happens. But anyway, so then Cornell was like, it was just such a better experience overall. Same kind of deal with the morning monitoring being kind of a free-for-all, but a much nicer facility, kind of not quite the, like, you know, vibe of Columbia. It was busy for sure, but it just was more pleasant in that regard. And I often was seeing Dr. Chapman for the ultrasounds in the morning monitoring, which I found nice, you know, and he actually was the one who ended up doing some of the procedures as well. And I just felt like I kind of developed, like he got to know who I was, you know, I wasn't just like another person there. So that was good. He ended up giving me the same protocol in terms of the highest doses of the various drugs. But he made a few tweaks to it, which I think really made a huge difference. I don't know why, but so he ended up, I I have to think back. So I was on the same protocol in terms of the stimulation hormones. This is for the fresh cycle. But then he had me do a double trigger shot. So two shots to trigger the ovulation. I don't remember why, but I really think that that, it was like an extra boost or something like that. But so they did that. And then once I'd had the transfer They had me on an estrogen patch as well as the progesterone. And so like, it's just small things, but we ended up with, I'm pretty sure he did the egg retrieval actually, Dr. Chapman, but we ended up with, I think 10 eggs or something like that. But then we ended up with six really good looking embryos. Without Um, grades. Yeah. Without (laughs) grades. And and at at Cornell, they give you pictures of the embryos, which is very interesting as they're Uh transferring in like little photographs of the little round plops. So no grades, no pictures. But anyways, so we ended up with six what he called, I think at one point he called them juicy embryos. and
1: uh, That sounds better than an A. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. And that was great. And then so we decided to transfer two because I was that much older. And also statistically, I mean, of course, there's more of a chance of twins with two embryos transferred, but it doesn't seem like better or worse necessarily to do two at once, you know, in terms of the success rates, I guess. So we put in two embryos that first fresh cycle and I got pregnant again. But this time, what they found was that it was identical twins. So only one of the embryos had worked, but they were identical twins. They'd split and they were sharing a placenta, which is a high-risk situation. <laughs> so that was a whole nother kettle of fish. That wasn't really what I was hoping for in my ideal pregnancy. I think with that kind of situation, often you end up on bed rest for the whole third trimester. I kind of hoped for like a natural childbirth or, you know, something like in a birthing center and I wouldn't be able to do that. I'd have to be in a high risk you know, mm-hmm. situation. It would probably be a C-section, blah, blah, blah. But you know, that's what it was. So I was like, oh, it's great. You know, I'm pregnant. It's great. And when I went in for the ultrasound, there were two heartbeats and it seemed like there might be a thin wall between them in the placenta, which is better than there not being a wall. And so again, it was December and we were going to the UK for the holidays. I saw the doctors right up until I think eight weeks. I went in for two different ultrasounds, maybe where there were heartbeats. And I didn't see Dr. Chapman right before I left, but I had told him I was planning to travel. My mom was thinking, you know, she kind of hypothesized the whole time about what might be wrong or whatever. But she was like, well, I don't think it's good for you to fly when you're pregnant. Like that could affect things. And I had said to Dr. Chapman, is it a problem to fly? And he was like, no. And then I said to the doctor I saw right before we left, is it going to be a problem that we're flying? No, no, it should be fine. We'll see you when you get back. And then I ended up having a miscarriage in the UK, like two days before we were coming back, which was mm. difficult <laughs> and really only, only knew because I had a little bit of spotting, which didn't seem like it was anything, but I thought I should go get checked out at the hospital there. And so I went and they did an ultrasound and there were no heartbeats left. And at that point it was tricky because it was like, well, here I am in the UK and the doctors at the hospital there were like, well, you know, we can't really recommend to you that you fly back, that you should really just have a DNC here. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, what if, you know, what if you're wrong? Like, I can't, you're not my doctor. So I ended up, this is one way that Dr. Chapman was amazing. I ended up calling in and left a message for the nurses and I fully expected for a nurse to call me back. And he called me back himself internationally to say like, come back. I can see you right away. I'm so sorry. So we did that and I saw him and he confirmed that there weren't heartbeats and I had another DNC. And that was January of 2017, but I still had those four juicy embryos left frozen. And so July of 2017, we tried two more and that's what resulted in Kian, who is amazing. (laughs) And one thing that, and, and, you know, totally like worth the wait and like everything I could have hoped for in a child. And it was an amazing pregnancy. Like it was just what I wanted, you know? And another thing that was really great about Cornell as opposed to Columbia was that with a frozen embryo cycle, they actually let you have a natural cycle. They don't control your ovulation. You don't do Lupron. You don't do injections. You just abstain when it gets close to the time that you're going to ovulate, and you do the morning monitoring. Not very much in the first week, and the second week as you get closer to ovulation, they check to make sure they're taking blood work. They were doing early ultrasounds, but it was just blood work towards the end, and they can tell from the blood work when you've ovulated. And so then five days later, they just transfer the embryos. It was very like no big deal, you know. And I really think that that was part of why it worked for Kian, you know, for that cycle because it just wasn't fraught with all the stress and the timing and the injections and like, you know, it's just easy. And I'm so grateful that it worked out. So, and and we had two more embryos, which are the ones we just tried this August. And, you know, I was hopeful because they were juicy and also because we'd had two thus far out of four that had worked. I was hopeful for a sibling for Kian, but you know, that wasn't meant to be, but you know, we, we will probably see what happens on our own. And they say that, you know, especially with the diagnosis of unexplained infertility once you've had a successful pregnancy, then often people get pregnant on their own, you know, and they don't know why it's like your body now knows what to do or something, you know? So it's possible, but we're both that much older now. So we're not like, you know, getting too worked up about it, <laughs> but,
1: but yeah. And, and I'm guessing you wouldn't start over and do a whole new egg retrieval.
0: No, no. Cause we have Kian, like, you know, yeah. I, I, and we can't afford it. Like, I feel like I, I feel like we we were put through this journey. I don't, you know, I was given what I was given. I don't need mm-hmm. to push it more. And and there are lots of reasons why it would be overwhelming for us to have a second child. Mm-hmm. We both were hoping it would work. And I would really love a little girl, you know, mm-hmm. I think Ian would, would just love a sibling. You know, he's so many babies right now, but he's two and a half. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's hard. We're still working on the house. It would be Hard to find the space. It would be hard financially. We're both more tired, you know that kind of stuff. So yeah, I feel like this is the answer for now. That's another thing I I wanted to mention. This is probably a good time to do it as any, but it may be easier for me because we did successfully have a baby as a result of the IVF, but I definitely see silver linings in the process. And it may be harder to see those if you've gone through cycles and not had success, right? But even before we had Kian, I found at Cornell, especially that cycle that resulted in Kian, I was there waiting for my transfer. And I was there with other women who were waiting and they hadn't done this before. And they were worried and nervous and we would chat. And I felt like I was at a place where I was okay with whatever the outcome was, even though I didn't know that it was going to work, you know, and that I could sort of share a little bit of what I'd learned in the process with these other people. And that felt really good. Like it felt kind of Zen in the right way. You know, I don't know how I feel about reasons for things, but that could be a reason why I went through this so that I could then share this here and share in those moments and help people in their journey. It definitely brought Bob and I closer together. I'm already a pretty patient person, but it definitely like taught me a huge like lesson in patience and also sort of humbleness, you know, that I couldn't do it myself that I needed to just trust and put it out there, but then try to just be okay with whatever happened. And, you mm-hmm. know, those are all things, obviously that the work is not done, but I do feel like this whole process really helped me just trust in God more and Bob too, you know, even though he doesn't share my beliefs, but I feel that he really has come a long way in terms of being able to, you know, Try to trust. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Is there anything you'd like to share about your? I know you were saying earlier in the process there were several family voices you had with different opinions and things. Once you conceived, were they just happy that you were pregnant, or or yeah? What did that look like?
0: Yeah, no, I mean everyone was just thrilled. My mom, she's like, "Oh, he's like your miracle child," you know. <laughs> and and also, I think when we just tried these last two embryos she was really advocating that we try them because of course we could have just been like oh we aren't gonna even try them you know like mm-hmm. particularly was feeling quite overwhelmed right and like the idea that maybe even both of them would work was very scary mm-hmm. so that was one way that i felt that we needed to just trust but then my mom was also particularly like well you couldn't just throw them away <laughs> you know and i did feel that way too but I, mm-hmm. I have to say a lot of that came from her she also when I had the miscarriages, I think it was hard for her. She almost took it personally, which made it a little bit harder for me too. You know, like Mm -hmm. she kind of was like, well, why, you know, why would God do this? But then she also was like, well, you'll see those babies in in heaven one day. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, well, I I don't know how I feel about that. Like especially Mm -hmm. the ones that didn't even have heartbeats. Like I don't know if I agree Mm -hmm. with that, but she seemed to need to feel that way. And Mm -hmm. and so I felt it was a lot about her and her needs, which Mm -hmm. was also kind of awkward but I'm very close to my mom. I don't know if you can tell, but you know, Mm -hmm. we're close. And so I think it just made it a little bit more complicated for me, I guess, some of her reactions to the various stages of the process. But now everyone's just Mm -hmm. been like so, so thrilled that it worked out for us. And Kian, he really is a special little boy. And so (laughs) part of the argument, he's just happy and he's like smart. He's just great. So, you know, in, I think, you know, especially when these last two didn't work. A lot of family members have been like, well, at least Kian, he's so great. And like, you you know, you have that. And yeah, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was only really positive regarding him and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, but even my mom, she was trying to be supportive in the ways that she could, even though she may not have gone down the same route or felt like necessarily it was the way to go, but she was still supportive. And then everyone else in my family was very supportive. And I was going to mention too, so I, I do have a few more friends now than I did when I first started on the IVF journey who were through similar journeys and some with success and some without success, but that's another way. Like we were saying at the beginning, I think people often don't want to talk about, you know, they feel upset or like a failure and they don't want to share, but those friends I was able to share with them. And then, you know, the ones that didn't have successful pregnancies, it's been hard because I did, you know, but then I feel like since I have the knowledge of what we all went through, then it's helped me to be a better friend to them, even now that I'm a mother and they're not, you know, and I'm glad to be able to understand that and to try to, I feel like friends who haven't gone through this journey and have had children and not had any issues, like some of them I am not friends with anymore because it just felt like they weren't sensitive to where I was at or they didn't understand, you know, like, and and that was tricky, whereas the friends, I'm trying not to be that person to those other friends that I know struggled, and and some of whom don't, you know, weren't successful.
1: So, I would think it would be a little tricky, similar to grief in loss of a loved one, where it's very nuanced with each person and very individualized to kind of know how to be sensitive in the appropriate way for that person.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. And it, like it really- what is
1: a trigger? for one person right. is different for another person. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if that, that resonates or if you've found with this particular kind of journey that it, it there's more commonality.
0: I think that that resonates more from before I had Kian, like more in my relationships to my friends who did have kids at that point. Now, I think that, I mean, I, I am a bit sensitive to, you know, like the friends who tried and didn't have kids, like in terms of, you know, it, it is It is a little, there's the commonality of the experience, but then the not commonality of the now, which is kind of what you're saying. And so I, I try to not, I just try to be sensitive to that in that I'm not, you know, like for instance, on one of those friends' birthdays, I'm not necessarily going to send her a video of Kian singing happy birthday, you know, because yeah. I don't know, but I feel like that would be insensitive of me, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but I'm, I'm glad that I'm aware of those things to think about it and be like, okay. Or, you know, I, I try to make time to talk without being distracted by him because it doesn't feel like being a good friend to be like, Oh, I'm listening to you. But also, you know, my toddler's running around, you know, Mm. like, instead I'm like, okay, well, let's have one-on-one time that's, you know, and realizing that it's going to feel better for them than Mm -hmm. even if I was giving them equal time, but with the other, like, you know, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's hard, you know, and especially like, you want the best for your friends. And I, I really wish that, they could say, oh, it's always going to work out one way or another, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. always, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, this has been so wonderful. Is there anything that you haven't gotten to share that you'd like to share and or are there Mm -hmm. any insights or tips for someone say that someone's listening who is trying to conceive and it's taking a while and they may have to go down this road of conceiving in an alternative way. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's tricky. <laughs> like I said, in the beginning, you know, it's hard to know what to do, <laughs> right? In and, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, just relax, just take a vacation, just mm-hmm. be stressed, you know? And it's like, of course, as soon as you say those things, that's the last thing you're going to be able to do. You know? <laughs> right. But I did find, and I, I think it's easier to say this looking back, but I mean, I, I think getting to that place where it's okay either way is helpful. Right. I hear, I hear Kian thumping around upstairs. Actually, he's awake from his nap, but yeah, like trying to find, you know, like the place where it's like, like you're trying, it's not hard work. It's not like a bad feeling, but it's like just sort of a like, okay, not this month, maybe next month, but without pinning your hopes on it so yeah. much that if there's the disappointment when it doesn't happen, like if you can find that balance of like, I've got a lot going for me, I'm counting my blessings. This is not the end all or be all. Mm-hmm. I think that is a better place to be in if you can find it, but it's hard mm-hmm. to find.
1: Sure. Um,
0: yeah. Especially because the, the more months it takes, the more angst is involved, right?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or years um, in your case, right? Yeah, it was yeah. a really long journey for you. It
0: was, but I felt like I came to that place, right? And then I, then that was the time when I had key in. So, mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that that's like the magic thing, but I do think it's helpful, just personally, for your own, you know, self to just sort of look at what you do have and try to be content with that, and just hopeful, but not, you know, just try to keep it in a happy place. I guess. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you so I should, much. I should probably go. I hear him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Heartache. Thank you. I hope to see you face to face before I'll long. Be up for that park meetup. Let's see yeah, let's done. try again. All right, okay. thanks, that's Julie. Good. Bye. Nice Bye. Time. So that's Julie's fertility journey story. I loved in particular how she shared the mental and emotional aspects of it. There's a common thread between Julie's story and next week's story: a mindset, and for some, a mindset shift toward being open to any outcome while simultaneously seeking ways to find a sense of agency seems important to protect your mental health. This is so true for not only the fertility journey, but I know the majority of this podcast audience is expectant and new parents, and we've discussed in past episodes the need for similar mindset shifts for labor and parenthood as well. As we close things out today, I'd love to hear from you. Are you struggling or have you struggled to conceive? What were some of the emotional or spiritual challenges you faced along the way, and how did you meet those challenges? I'd love to connect with you over on Instagram. My handle is NYC, and you're welcome to chime in to our posts on the topic or DM
2: me. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. I remember I just paused and I said, wait, can I not try another cycle with my own eggs? And she said, No, I wouldn't recommend it. We're not going to do that. I would only consider doing egg donors for you because of your egg quality. And I kept pushing her. I was like, How is there really no chance? And she said, I give you a less than 1% chance of having your own biological children with your own eggs. That percentage was like, it, it's killer, right? Less than 1%. Yeah. And here I am. At this point, I was 35. And instead of in my perfect plan, By 35, I'd have three kids. Instead, I was sitting here in the doctor's office at 35, been trying for five years, never been able to get pregnant, and being told I had less than a 1% chance of having a child. This, by far, was the lowest point in my journey. Whatever your struggle
1: might be today, whether it's a struggle to conceive, struggle to recover from a loss, or something completely different, I just want to encourage you with these words, you have the strength to persevere. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I can't wait to see you next week and be well.